Our guest in this segment caught our attention when the UC Davis News Service announced that she'd taken part in the decision as to just where NASA would put down its next rover on Mars. Listeners to this show will understand that we just can't get enough of this sort of thing. In recent years, this correspondent's traveled to Pasadena no less than four times to be close at hand as missions to Mars attempted to put down on the surface of the red planet. From the Mars Pathfinder mission in 1997 to the Phoenix lander three years ago, we've tried to be near the center of action as NASA sought to, to land and look around, in some cases drive around, on the Martian surface. The next mission, the Mars Science Laboratory, represents the next generation of rover. And as its name suggests, it is a mobile science lab and promises to teach us a great deal about our planetary neighbor. To maximize the scientific gain from this mission, one needs to follow the three rules from real estate here on Earth. Things depend on location, location, and location. Dr. Don Sumner is a professor of geology here at UC Davis. She took part in the process of selecting the best location to plant the Mars Science Laboratory. After winnowing down 50 locations, NASA's science team picked a spot with an intriguing geology, Gale Crater. We're keen to learn why Gale Crater won out over the competition and more importantly discover what this sophisticated science lab may teach us about the presence of water and who knows, maybe even life on the planet Mars. So let's hear from an expert, Dr. Don Sumner. Welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. And I, and I have to ask you, maybe this is a little bit of an unfair question, but what, there were four of you, I guess, voting or maybe even more. Uh, was Gale your first choice? It was my first choice. Okay. Um, but it's, it's uh, much more than uh, four people voting. Okay. It was an extended process over um, at least seven years uh, with community input uh, from hundreds of uh, interested scientists. And then um, the just then that was open to the entire community. And then the uh, Mars Science Laboratory Project um, set up a team. Uh, of uh, people to lead discussions on the landing sites. And so that led to a lot of uh, evaluation of the sites and the science that we could do there. And I co-chaired um, uh, that effort. And then what happens is the um, project at uh, JPL takes all of that input, and we had a team meeting and discussed the landing sites. And then the principal investigators that sort of headed up each instrument had a meeting and discussed the sites. And that led to a recommendation to NASA. And um, a NASA administrator, um, Ed Weiler, is the one who actually chooses the site, and he chose Gale. Well, it looks as though, uh, from, what I can, from what I can gather, and we should point out to people, there's some wonderful information on the web if people want to learn more about this upcoming mission. But um, I guess my question is... Um, uh, it sounds like it came down to people that wanted to look at the minerals and people that wanted to look at the strata that are there. Yeah, so, so what attracted me to Gale Crater and, and other members of the team is that um, when you have strata and layers of rocks, um, it's like reading a book. You go from the bottom is the oldest history, and each layer represents the processes that um, happened when that layer formed. So Gale Crater has a mountain in it with layers, and um, we always often make the analogy to the Grand Canyon. Um, you know, deep in the canyon, you get the oldest history, and as you climb up out of the canyon, which in my case is very slowly, um, you see those changes in the environment that happened um, uh, when those layers were deposited. Gale Crater provided that that 
France was the longest uh, history in that way. The uh, discussion you, you mentioned about, you know, study the minerals versus the stratigraphy uh, is the way it was sometimes argued and portrayed. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that, that each one of the layers in Gale is made up of minerals, and there happen to be very interesting clay minerals and sulfate minerals that are um, in those layers, and they change as you go up through the layers. So the mineralogists on the science team for MSL um, actually are really interested in those minerals and those variations. So one of the reasons that Gale came out on top is that there are some very interesting mineralogical questions in addition to that, that um, the strata and the, the history of those changes through time. Well, I, I did pass Geology 1 as a UCD student many years back. I'm certainly not a geologist, but it's, it, from what I could put together, uh, you're looking for clay, which would form in water, but above that you've got some layers that have salts in them that must have been when the water, I guess, dried up. Y yeah, that's, that's sort of the, this, the first-order interpretation. Um, the interesting thing is that the salts are actually towards the bottom of the mountain. Hmm. And so we have to have this whole process of, of repeated um, water influx, drying up, um, and uh, bringing in more sediment. And so we think that these layers are going to represent um, a variety of different environments and different processes, um, because you can't just do it with, say, a single flood and drying up, up the water. You have to have a sequence of a lot of different events that, that we don't know what those are yet. Well, there's been a lot of talk about water on Mars, uh, and we certainly know it's there, and we know there's quite a bit of it there. I guess I, I can remember, I'm old to remember the Mariner 4 probe going by and everyone saying, oh, false alarm, Mars looks more like the moon. It's just a cratered surface, it's very dry. But we now know there's quite a bit of water there, and there's some recent headlines about uh, some craters where it looks like it may be erupting on the surface. So maybe Mars is maybe more dynamic than we've even known. I, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the things that I've really learned in the past decade of of, of participating in Mars research is that um, every time we have a new mission or a new set of observations, um, we see that the planet's more complex. It's it's a very um, different place than Earth, and the processes are are very different. Uh, but it is an entire planet. It's um, much more complicated than the moon is, for example. Well, I have to confess, Dr. Sumner, I really don't have a lot of patience that people keep saying, you know, why are we spending that money going into space? It seems to me that uh, if, you, if you want to learn about what's going on in here on Earth, and we certainly do with issues of global warming and, and changes in climate, what better thing to have than a control? And here we have this other planet out there that we can, we can actually go observe and, and, and take, take some data from that might teach us quite a bit about Earth. I think we'll learn a huge amount about Earth and um, early Earth. And, you know, it sounds like um, a lot of money. This is, this is a very large planetary mission by, by uh, NASA standards, um, but it's, it's really only a very small fraction of um, NASA's budget as a whole um, and certainly of, of money that we, we spend otherwise. Well, I'm all for it. <laughs> One of the interesting things about being a professor is you learn a lot from your students, and I've, I've taught... Uh, sort of exploratory classes for, for Mars, and I've had students come in skeptical about spending the money, and then they put it in the perspective of the budget 
um, and uh, the science return and the feedback into education. And it's really an incredibly good deal. <laughs> well, I have to confess to my bias. Uh, you know, I'm, I, in my right hand right now, I have William Hartman's uh, Traveler's Guide to Mars. We've spoken to Steve Squires in this program previously. But honest to God, I don't know how somebody can't look at this, uh, like, New Scientist magazine showing the Opportunity rover and, what, and the path it's taken and how it's perched now on the end of Endeavor Crater and, and just not find that to be exciting. I agree completely. Well, there's some headlines. For, as of literally today's headlines, our article in the Sacramento Bee uh, off the Associated Press, apparently uh, the opportunity is perched on the edge of the Endeavor crater, and people are quite excited about some of the, the pictures that's sending back about the, uh, the strata there. Yes, I'm, I'm not uh, part of that mission, but um, I um, follow it closely, and I listened to the press conference yesterday, and um, they have found a, a new type of rock that... Um, after all these years on the surface of Mars, um, it's, uh, it's very different, and uh, it's very exciting. When they have these press conferences, they ask people to say, what does this mean as the data just comes in? I know people are sometimes saying, well, I'd like to study it a bit if you don't mind, but uh, would you care to speculate? Yes, I would. Um, so it's breccia, um, the, the rock they've been investigating, and that's rock that's been broken up, and the parts of it have been displaced. And um, I happen to have uh, spent a lot of time uh, discussing with my colleagues how you tell the origins of, of breccias. And uh, one of the things that came across in the press conference um, was, uh, you know, not knowing what, what the origin of, of uh, the breccia is. And even when you're on Earth and you can see things really well and you can look at a lot of um, area, it's often really difficult to, to tell the processes that, that create those breccias. And because they can happen from everything from rock falls or faulting or high-pressure hot water underground or dissolution and collapse features. Um, one thing that I think that can say about this rock is, you know from the, the regional um, uh, images from um, high-rise, um, an orbiter around Mars, that, that this is an older rock type, and so it's underneath the layered rocks that Opportunity has been studying most of the time. And when you see these these broken-up rocks, there, there, there are two possibilities. They're very close to a small crater, and they might have been broken up during um, a cratering process. But I think that they, they may have been broken up um, earlier, possibly related to the big Endeavor crater or hydrothermal process or even, you know, a slope failure, landslide-type process. Even if we can't tell the origin of those broken up rocks, it, it, it provides evidence of very different processes than the, the layered rocks that are younger than them and deposited on top of them. So um, hopefully, with more investigation, the Opportunity team will be able to uh, learn more about its composition. And they speculated on whether or not it was related to um, hydrothermal fluids, um, which is basically hot water, which can cause brecciation when it's under pressure. Hopefully, they'll be able to get some more clues to, to sort of uh, refine the interpretation. Um, again, an orbital instrument, CRISM, suggests that they're clay minerals. Um, the, the composition of the rock didn't suggest higher aluminum, which is often present in clays. Um, hmm. But it, it may be hard for opportunity to actually find those. Well, I know uh, the people are keenly interested in these dark streaks that are appearing on the sides of craters. They, they suspect uh, that there must 
be a, a, a process related to water, underground water. And, uh, well, I guess what you're saying is we may be able to get uh, some, some, some data that, would, that looks at that. The water interaction would be older than the dark streaks that they're seeing, mm -hmm. um, given the location of, of opportunity um, and sort of the details of the, the environment. But it could be a, um, an ancient version of a similar process. Well, uh, people were very disappointed back when Viking put down on Mars back in the 1970s. They took a claw out. It was looking specifically for life. And one of the things people have been disappointed about to this day is that they didn't seem to find uh, any organic molecules. And, of course, you're going to have to have that if there's going to be life there. But they now looked, we looked at that and decided that uh, maybe, maybe some of these chemicals on the Martian surface are altering the data. Can you talk about that? I first want to say that... Um People focus on the failure of Viking <laughs> to uh, find organic matter. Yeah. But I, I can only imagine, I was, I was too young to, to be part of it, but I can only imagine the excitement of having the first two landers on another planet. Mm -hmm. And I, I just feel obligated to say that although the life detection experiments didn't find evidence of life, the amount we learned about the geology... Um, and the surface of Mars in general is amazing, and people still use that data today. I understand the Mars Science Laboratory is going to be able to look for organics again with a little more sophisticated look and maybe, uh, maybe pick it up where the Viking missed it. Uh, yes, so there, there are two things, one of which is we're going to a landing site where we think that we're more likely to have organics preserved. So, so we've been able to, with our knowledge of Mars geology from the orbiters um, and the previous landed missions, uh, plus our better understanding of geochemistry than we had in the 70s, um, we've chosen Gale Crater in part because um, we think the rocks there will be better, won't react with the organics as much as those at the Viking landing sites. Also, um, uh, SAM, which is a sample analysis on Mars, which is instruments that can characterize, detect and characterize organic compounds, um, has, a, has a variety of ways to try to release organic carbon uh, from uh, sort of the mineral samples that we'll be looking at. And it's also a much um, more refined analytical instrument, so it can, it can um, detect um, lower concentrations. So, so the SAM team has really studied the Viking data um, extensively, and they've done the best they can to design an instrument that will overcome the, the issues that we think we had with the Viking uh, one. Well, if you're going to go to Vegas and place a bet, what would you say the odds were we're going to find some organics? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I am one of those people that I know... I don't know the statistics behind that because I don't understand the processes. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, I can pick randomly yes or no or any number in between, and it's really meaningless because um, I can go down argument paths where there's no way we'd find organics um, because they'll all be oxidized. Uh -huh. And I can also go down the path and say, well, even if there was never any life on Mars, Meteorites have landed on the surface of Mars, and we've seen them there. We know they have to be there. Um, we can calculate about how many there should be. And there are certain classes of meteorites that have organic compounds in them that are made by abiotic processes. Right. So we should have organics on the surface of Mars from meteorites at least. Which tends to cast doubt on the fact that Viking didn't find any, because we think they had to be some. 
Well, except that maybe they've all reacted with ah. um, the dust on Mars, and that's particularly an issue at Viking. Um, so it could be that in Gale Crater, where we ha- we're going to have a drill, and we'll be able to drill a few centimeters uh, into the rock, and we'll be looking for organics um, away from the exact surface, and we think we have layers of a rock type that might sort of keep the organic matter from reacting too much. And we have some, you know, particularly the clay minerals sometimes absorb the organic matter and protect them. So, so we're hoping that if the reason they haven't been found is because they're reacting with iron and various things on the Martian surface, we might be able to find them. But then you have to wonder how how concentrated were they when they were first buried, and you know have a, a water with oxygen or something else that will react the, with the organic matter. Has that flowed through the rocks? You know that happens a lot on Earth, but it doesn't happen all the time. Well, from my ignorance, I'm going to just reach forward and say I'm giving three to one in favor of organics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hope you're I hope you're right. <laughs> We're speaking with Dr. Don Sumner, professor of geology at UC Davis. She helped participate in the planning of the upcoming Mars Science Laboratory mission to the Red Planet. Um, Dr. Sumner, this I, I was there in 04 when the spirit bounced, literally bounced across the Martian surface, uh, did kind of a hole-in-one, landed in a, in, a, in, a, um, in a small crater. It was very exciting. My understanding is this mission is so much larger and so much more uh, massive that they couldn't do that, and they're going to try and actually hover in space and basically uh, lower the rover down to the surface. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, it is, and they call it a sky crane. And um, I think pretty much every time anyone sees the animation of how this process is supposed to work the first time, I think we all gulp and go, <laughs> it <does> not work. <laughs> But, but I, was, I was talking to the chief engineer for the project, uh, Mike Watkins, and, and he pointed out that, that actually they use that process with helicopters and large vehicles all the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, sort of as I've talked to the engineers and listened to their evaluations of safety and, and various things, um, I've become more and more convinced that... Um, that they've chosen a, a, a reasonable and possibly the only good <laughs> landing system for, for such a large rover. We should point out, too, for listeners, that this will not be something where people are going to be home are going to be, like, uh, adjusting it. The robot has to do it on its own because uh, it's going to be, like, something like 20 light minutes away from Earth. So it's got to be a very smart, uh, smart spacecraft. Uh, it does, and the, the response time has to be much faster than um, even, if, even if there was a person there. Um, it, it would be hard for them to respond fast enough. Wow. Well, I have to confess that uh, we have another science program on KDVS this week in science. They get a lot of books, and I, I have to. I, I reached into the bin because apparently Kristen and uh, Justin did not pull this book out called We Are Not Alone, Why We've Already Found Extraterrestrial Life. But uh, I don't know if you've seen this thing, but they're making the claim here, hey, what do we look, it's already, we've already found it. I, I haven't seen that particular book. <laughs> Some people certainly think they have found it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. There's, there's who, are, who are not crazy. Who are not crazy, right. I would add. <laughs> there, there's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, Carl Sagan um, would say. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. The discovery of extraterrestrial life would be such an amazing contribution to our understanding of ourselves and our place in the universe that 
You know, you have to be very, very careful about it. I I know there are a lot of conspiracy theories about how (laughs) NASA's discovered it and kept it secret. Mm. I can guarantee you that it is really hard for NASA people to keep secrets. Yeah. I mean, there there are certainly some, um, but something like that would be so incredible uh, to share that, and there's no reason at all to to keep that a secret. We did have John Dean on this program many years ago, and he made a very uh, astute comment that when it came to conspiracy theories, he liked to deal with only the ones that were real. (laughs) 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 And people like Hoagland seeing this face on Mars and pyramids and things, well, we can reassure everybody, no, that's, that's not real. Right. Well, where will you, where will you be next uh, next summer when this thing is going to put down? Are you going to be down there in Pasadena? I don't know for sure. There's still some decision making and um, about whether or not all the team members will be at JPL or whether they will be at their home institutions. I would very much like to be um, at JPL, so I'm I'm hoping to be there. And what will be your continued input into this mission as a geologist? Going to be directly hands on as they're going around and sampling things. Yes. So we've been doing some training exercises um, about the process, and um, there are a number of committees and, and subcommittees and, and different roles um, that people play. And, and I uh, intend to be heavily involved for the, the two years of the prime mission, at least. Well, I gather the mountain in the center of the crater is, is where you're headed, but there's a gully in particular that uh, is where the spacecraft's going to end, and I guess that's going to take a little time to get there. On where in the ellipse we land, it's about uh, 10 kilometers, which is less than opportunity has, has uh, driven. Uh-huh. Um, uh, there are some interesting things within the landing ellipse, and in particular, we want to look at rocks that have been eroded down from the wall of the crater. And then there's a there's a, a rock unit, unlike anything else we've seen on Mars, and we don't know what it is, and we can't tell from the orbital data. Um, and we'll definitely stop and look at that. But the goal is to go over to the, the steep slopes with the uh, beautiful rock layers and the clay mineral signatures and the sulfate salt mineral signatures and um, be surprised at what we find. I guess the final question slash comment I have about for, for this, whole, this whole exciting topic is that uh, someone mentioned along the way that this promises to be some actually some, some scenic vistas when they get there, and some of the other landing sites were going to be probably dull. The claim was made that this may have pushed Gale more to the front, that it, that it, that it promises to be some very interesting photographs coming back. Yeah, the, the mountain has a lot of knolls on it with steep slopes, and I imagine it looking a lot like um, the, the uh, southwest sort of Monument Valley or, or things like that. The science is what drove the choice for Gale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's unquestionable, <laughs> uh, unquestionable appeal both to the public and those of us on the team to go somewhere that just looks different than where we've gone before. <laughs> so that's, that's it's sort of an added benefit. Um, but it, it really is the science uh, that, that uh, brought Gale to the top. Very good. Well, thank you for speaking with us, Dr. Sumner. I do hope that a year from now all's going to go well and we can bring you back with some exciting science to, to report from, uh, from the surface of Mars. I'd be happy to do that. Thanks a lot.